0: Greetings and welcome again to CTC Inside Voice, technology talk with a cooperative focus. In this, our second episode, we're talking about the state of rural telecommunications. Joining us today is Kevin Larson, CTC CEO and GM, and Christy Westbrock, CTC COO. I'm Daniel, CTC Marketing Communications. This podcast is available directly from soundcloud.com slash CTC Inside Voice or in any mobile podcast apps. You can find CTC on the web at connectctc.com. Thank you for listening. To get us started, we asked Kevin Larson to give us some history and background into the early days of CTC and to talk about what sets a cooperative apart from other providers. Here's Kevin Larson.
1: Oh uh, Well, first of all, you know, co-ops they've been around for hundred years or more. Mm-hmm. I mean, and really a cooperative is started when people figure out or find that they're not getting something from somebody else. They can't buy the services or they're not reliable. So people gather together and they say, you know, we could do this together or collectively and we could uh, get a service or get a product Um more efficiently and more dependable by forming our own company or whatever. And so, you know, you've had dairy co-ops, milk co-ops. North Dakota has always had a lot of co-ops. They had bison processing co-ops. They had a pasta co-op, taking durum wheat and making pasta. In the telecommunications industry, it it really came from a lot of uh, real rural areas back in the early 1900s when telephone was really getting started that – People were being left behind. The investor-owned companies, the big Bells, weren't going to every community. So the farmers would get together, pool their money or whatever, and build a line, and uh, they'd maintain it themselves. And then they would connect somewhere to the Bell system and be able to make phone calls. That's what Consolidated Telephone was made up of back in the 40s. There were some farmer-owned lines that got together because in 1947, the REA program, the Rural Electrification Program, which started in the 30s, built electric co-ops uh, systems, but they didn't have the ability to borrow money for rural telephone co-ops until 1947. So in 47, Congress said, "You know what? We we need to include telephone. It's just as much an essential service as." electricity so in 1950 the farmer owned lines around southern Brainerd got together here in Brainerd and they said let's form a co-op they did that in 1950 and they applied for an REA loan to rebuild and enhance those farmer owned lines and they received their loan in 1952 and they bought new poles and insulators and wire and so that's how we got started why because nobody else would do it and so in order to provide the service that was needed they they basically grabbed their bootstraps pulled it up pulled them on by themselves and says we can do it ourselves so that's where the co-op spirit comes from and we still live and breathe that today we believe through our vision and mission statements and our values that we want to provide services to people that no one else will provide to them and so that's what we do today.
0: I don't know if you can speak to this, but maybe you can. But why, why won't the other companies go out to areas
1: like that? The reason is, is there isn't enough density, enough population to be able to invest the capital and get any return on your investment so it has to be done under a different model and back in the 50s when they started the REA program the reason the farmers were able to go out and create that co-op and do this was they got very low interest money for a very long period of time I mean those loans were 35 40 years Well, you realize now your payments per year get quite small Mm -hmm. so you were able to make your payments and keep your system going. Now everything's changing, you know, everything changes out faster now. And that's why 30 30 plus years ago they created the Universal Service Fund, where every telephone line pays into this national fund. And then when rural companies like CTC across the nation, which there's almost a thousand still small companies scattered around the US. In order for them to survive, to provide services that are equal to those in the urban areas, they get a support payment to help with the costs. Because there's no business plan that you can make. You can run a telecommunications company in a rural area where the density isn't there. There's just not enough revenues to pay for the capital investment.
0: In our primary service areas of our ILEC as the incumbent local exchange carrier, members are required to sign up for telephone service. But as the years have gone by and mobile phone service has grown, uh, more of our current and new customers especially don't expect to have to add phone service to their accounts. But it's integral to how our business is funded. So we asked Kevin about this funding apparatus, how it's changed, and what the future holds.
1: Like I mentioned, 30 plus years ago when they created the Universal Service Fund to help build a fund of dollars that could be shared with the rural areas so people got equal to services, it was based on the telephone line. The tax or the payment was brought in for every telephone line and therefore the rules are written that you have have a telephone line in order to get those support payments. We, are, we have been advocating for a number of years now, and the FCC is beginning to move down the path of trying to move. It's a massive, it's, you know, the Universal Service Fund is very large. It's it's 6 to $10 billion, and there's other programs that get money out of that, telemedicine, e-services for schools, support payments to schools. Um, but it's, the rules are still written that, CTC, in order to get a support payment on that line that goes out to that house or that business, that they have to have a telephone line. But they are working on the rules to move that support payment from a telephone line to a broadband connection. But it's a massive program, it's a massive undertaking, and it's complex to rewrite these rules. You just, at the stroke of a pen, don't do this. Because you have to realize now not just telephone companies provide broadband. You got cable systems. You got little wireless, you know, wireless ISPs and so forth. So now it gets more complex. They tried ten years ago, the FCC, to put that so-called tax on a, an internet connection. They 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 rolled it out, and says we should start talking about instead of having a telephone line pay into the universal service fund, we should have every internet connection, pay into it, they're going to have to address that. And it's called contribution reform. Who pays in to the USF to bring services to rural America? And it's, it's they haven't vetted out all of the things on that, but it's, it's something that's going to have to be worked on. And the appropriate thing is to, in a rural area, to provide broadband, you need a support payment. When I say it's complex, who do you give the support to? You know, what if, what if you have a cable company that's already giving broadband in in the town, but then you got a telecommunications company that's providing broadband in the town, but they're also doing the very rural area where there's hardly any customers. So do they both get a support payment or just one or nobody gets it for the community because there's two providers and only the one that's providing the more rural area gets it? That's where the complexity gets into this, and it's going to take a while to let all those rules shake out.
0: Between 1952, starting as a party line cooperative telephone provider, until 1996, when we added our first dial-up internet service, copper line services were the backbone of CTC. This led to advanced DSL services, which we began in 2001. Since then, and with the help of the RUS program, CTC has grown to build out fiber optic lines to all of our service areas. We asked Kevin about the progress of our fiber builds and then talked with Christy Westbrock about the impact and importance of fiber optics from an operations standpoint.
1: We've been very fortunate. Our board of directors have given us the authority to to build out and we went and got loans to uh, build fiber to every one of our connections will be done at the end of this year with uh, Leader and Freedom and, and Rural Randall. There's a lot of companies that haven't even started and there's some that are half done or 20% done and so forth. We have found in our operation, and Christy can speak more to this as the operations manager, we've seen huge efficiencies in getting the fiber in because copper cables can get, you know, well, fiber can get damaged too, but um, by backhoe, that Backhoe doesn't care whether it's fiber or copper, but uh, water and uh, elect- electrical um, influence and so forth changes copper a whole lot more than it does the light wave. Fiber is way more dependable. Right. Plus, the neat thing about fiber is is if you, if you need the pipe to be bigger, you don't dig up the line and put in a bigger line. You just change the electronics on each end.
0: What's it like going from a copper company to a fiber company?
2: You know, I, I think that there's a few things. One one is there's, there's a lot of companies out there today that believe that the copper networks and the copper infrastructures um, will be relevant in the future based on the electronics that you tie on to the end of that copper. CTC's philosophy is we see limitations in that, and our board has supported that today we see limitations in the copper, and which is why we've went in and um, spent at this point in time uh, about sixty-two million dollars in investment in fiber optics um, in the Brainerd Lakes area, and then in our surrounding islet communities. We believe fiber is the long-term the long-term solution. There is fiber in our network today that we know uh, factually has thirty years on that fiber, and and we see no trouble with it. And so while the end of the fiber will have to be changed out basically the equipment that you hang on it as people want more bandwidth and more speeds and more products within their home that um, we'll have to switch that out but that the fiber should be a very very long-term investment perhaps 50 to 60 year investment for the company. And so um, that's one of the pieces. I'd say the other piece internally and more on the operational front with fiber is that we see a much better dependability with the fiber. And so that impacts your overall troubles, your overall customer service complaints and those types of things and the idea that you can do symmetrical bandwidth that we can offer 100 by 100 which today is a very big limitation even with some of the vdsl platforms and copper and those types of things they still aren't seeing symmetrical speeds with those products
0: i thought we would pause for a moment here just to talk briefly about symmetrical speeds a symmetrical service refers to the upload and download speeds of an internet connection for example when you're sending and receiving email When you send email, that's considered an upload. So you're uploading a piece of information from your computer out into your internet connection and into the internet. On the download side, when you're downloading, this is when you receive information to the computer. With fiber optic service, the upload and the download can be the same speed. And what's important to note here is that traditionally with copper line service, the upload speed is much, much lower than the download speed. So the upload speed with a fiber optic connection is really important, uh, especially in certain types of businesses that require a lot of data to be transferred between locations or or uploaded to other services. It's also important to home users as the complexity of internet applications, especially those allowing real-time communication uh, through video and through voice, and also all of the services that are beginning to become integrated into the home really rely on that upload link to perform their services.
2: There are certainly um, manufacturers out there that are working on how to get that satisfied um, in their product line, but today we just aren't seeing that.
0: Moving to a primarily fiber footprint has not only improved reliability, it's also introduced new challenges as the network interface connects more services and becomes less central in the home. The NID is where the fiber optic service enters the home and customer-owned equipment is connected. One challenge has been with the growing influence of wireless connectivity for Internet-connected devices. The need to train members and troubleshoot to identify the source of the problem increases. This has offered challenges, but also new sources of revenue, like that offered in our managed wireless services.
2: I think wireless networks just overall, that the consumer doesn't exactly understand where the pipe that we provide starts and stops versus the equipment that they purchase and they have to service. And so really some of our wireless products now that are all home encompassing and that will help support those have um, maybe caused us more trouble tickets, but it's also a new line of business and a new product for us that we focus on with our Wi-Fi anywhere type product. Years
1: ago, we used to, um, we'd give away that service. We would take care of that phone line all the way to your house, all the way to that black standard telephone rotary dial phone over there. We took care of it all. If the phone quit, we replaced the phone. If the inside wiring broke, we fixed it. Well, that's all changing now. So now we're, we're moving more into the environment where we deliver the broadband pipe to the side of the home or the business. We don't care what the customer hangs on that to use that internet pipe, that broadband pipe. But because of our, what we've basically given away over the years, we now have to create and teach the consumer that, no, your computer's not working, not because the broadband pipe isn't right, but your computer is bad. That's an education process. It's also an opportunity for us to teach them, and it's also an opportunity to, to raise some more revenue on taking care of them. A lot of times we have technicians that can look at that customer without even a truck rolled in and almost determine what's wrong out there and then if they want us to come then they have the choice of paying us to come out and fix it or try to fix it themselves or use somebody else
2: the other piece I was thinking of when it when we were talking about troubles that I find when you're talking to people about our services and where our product starts and stops is last night after having several storms this summer, um, one of the individuals said, now storms don't really impact you guys that much, do they? And I, I had to smile. And what I said to her was, with every strike of lightning I see, it runs through my head how many trouble tickets did that just cause, CTC, um, because electronics... And electricity don't always get along that well, they and share so the same, they, <laughs> they yes, the same and, and so the same um, you know I think from a consumer perspective, when they're looking at things like the elements of weather impacting their internet and their TV and that type of thing, it's not something they always tie together. Of why is this impacting, and why is so much water impacting my services today? But if you think about those cabinets out in the middle of the field, are sitting probably in a pool of water filled with electronics at that point in time. So that's been one um, consumer education piece that I've found interesting when you talk to people about they don't tie that together very quickly.
0: People had maybe a fundamental understanding of how a telephone works, I think. Mm -hmm. You think just the complexity of it and... Well, you, th- that you think
2: changed. about what we learned as students. Mm-hmm. I mean, Alexander Graham Bell, and you studied him, and you studied the telephone and how the telephone was put together, and and the cans with the strings and all of those things. Today, teaching internet to a student is complex. I mean, it, in teaching how it's networked and architected, I mean, it, it'd be like teaching you know them to build a huge building or a huge you know, complex or something. And and what you're trying to teach is how you build a network. And so I don't think it's as simple as teaching about Alexander Graham Bell and the telephone.
0: Asked Kevin and Christy to talk about what are some of the fundamental challenges facing the cooperative today. Here's what they had to say.
1: The challenges that we see right now for rural America is this whole transition from support on a telephone line versus support on a broadband pipe. And there's a lot of uncertainty out there. I mean, they're working on rules and they've come up with a new plan. And it's, it's, it's probably a four to seven year plan. And some people say, well, that's a long time. It's not in a utility business. We're very business based on 20, 30 years of, of making it work. And so we've got to get that fixed in Washington, DC so that we bring back more um, reliability on how we're going to build uh, networks to rural America. When you think about Brainerd Baxter and the surrounding region, there's lots of regions like this that do not have the connectivity that we have. And we see it just a few miles outside of these borders of our communities. I mean, that's why we have a state broadband grant program is because there's still plenty of need out there. So the state of it, so that's kind of the negative side of the state of the um, telecom industry. The other side is there's huge excitement. What You just mentioned at the very beginning of this of how much change you've seen in eight years. And you're going to see half again or twice as much change in the next eight years because the new services, because of these connections, a couple of years ago, they said we had seven billion devices across the globe are connected to the internet. And they said by 2020, that could be 50 billion devices. Now that could be the smart refrigerator or the washing machine all the way to the road grader for the county to the mining machine to an irrigation pivot that's constantly connected and they know exactly what's going on all the time how much fertilizers how much water is going on so when you think about connected devices if you can imagine it it's probably going to be connected in some way shape or form all the way from you know, smart toothbrushes to, you know, to, if you can dream it, it's probably going to be connected. So that's the exciting part of this, that we're, we're actually helping that whole movement on the globe for us to be better at raising food, better at getting things delivered. So on a global sense, it's an exciting business. Yes, there are issues, but I believe they will get worked out because they always have been. we found a solution some way, somehow. Some of us think it should happen quicker, but um, the future is still exciting and wide open in the telecom mm-hmm. state.
2: I would say, uh, just to give an example that I use quite a bit um, with funding, and that's what i would identify as the primary challenge in this business is when you talk to somebody who indicates that you know i'm i'm just right across the street from the fiber or i'm just right down the road a mile or that type of thing if you if you think about that in terms that in rural america the average cost to build to a home is about seven thousand dollars with fiber optics and if you think that that consumer then pays perhaps $100 a month for telephone, internet, and maybe some cable TV services, and that your margin becomes fairly low uh, overall, you know, you're not making a $100 once you put that in. But even if you take the $100 and you think that company just spent $7,000 to bring fiber to my home, on how long those payback models are. And then when you look at a corporation or a bigger bell organization, and their stock held, and they need to return money much faster than um, seven years, and and they need to show stockholders more value than that that's kind of where you end up having that differentiation between the co-op and the bigger corporations providing those same type of services is that co-ops are able to take a much longer um, amount of time to get a payback into into their system um, because they aren't there for a profit. They're not there for a shareholder or stockholder. They're there to provide services to the members that nobody else will serve.
0: So is, is CTC a nonprofit?
2: You know that's, that's interesting. <laughs> um, we we have a five hundred one status, but it's not the same as a five hundred one. C status. Um, Co ops were kind of um, the way I understand it, put into their own little bucket of 501c3, or excuse me, not a three, a 501. And so, are we a nonprofit? Not in the sense of that we're providing all of our funds back to a charitable cause or to that type of thing, but we are in the sense that we put the money back into the membership, into the infrastructure, into the needs of the member. And so, it it's really different, but in a lot of ways we have a lot of similarities. So you know, for me going working from a corporation um, just about nine years ago to a co-op, there's there's a vast difference in how you look at overall models and and how you look at how fast you need to get your returns and, and those types of things. And so um, that's really something when people think about a co-op to really get your arms around is that they're not operating as a corporation, um, but still at seven thousand dollars a build, you can't do very many a year because you still have to put the cash outlay um, out there. And so when people are frustrated, when are you coming to my community, or why can't you build across the street? It it all comes down to dollars. And I always say it's such a high class problem because they want your product, they're demanding your product, and you can't deliver the product that you serve to them yeah. and everybody because of wants the cost. It. And yeah. everybody wants it. Yeah. It's a demand product. <laughs> Broadband <laughs> is
0: an easy sell. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It is. That concludes this podcast of the State of Rural Telecommunications. I want to thank Kevin Larson and Christy Westbrock for joining us today. If you'd like to see more of our podcasts, it's available at soundcloud.com slash ctcinsidevoice. You can also find us on the web at connectctc.com. Thanks for listening. Have a great day.